This is Eunice Jung, and today I'm talking to Dr. DeCoster from Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences regarding how intersectionality relates to medicine. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Can we get started with a brief introduction of yourself? Sure. My name is Dr. Barry DeCoster. I'm a philosopher by training. Uh, most of my work is in philosophy of science or bioethics. I am an associate professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at ACBHS. Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, where I um, teach both pharmacy students and a lot of public health students. So before we start off with this conversation, can you tell us what intersectionality is? Sure. Intersectionality, I think it's getting more uptake in recent years in sort of popular culture as a discussion. For me, I think about it as a tool for understanding identity in a more complicated way. Um, identity is more than our physical bodies. It's kind of how we name ourselves, who we are in a more complicated way, how I see you and how you see me. That's more than just our physicality. It's ourself in a more um, interesting way in many ways. And there's a lot of things that shape who our identities are. Some of it is our biological stuff and our inherited connections to our families. But then there are things like the common ones might be our gender, our sexuality, our race, our age, our economic status, our class. And intersectionality is like a lot of things in philosophy. It's a tool for understanding something that's really complex and it gives us a way into it. Intersectionality also allows us to understand that on those identity threads, the different aspects or facets of ourselves, sometimes they come with different power abilities right they name what i'm allowed to do or what i'm expected to do or how i look at you and expect certain things or prevent you or don't expect certain things for you to be possible so um i identify as a white gay male and so as a white guy i have a lot of sort of social capital a lot of things in the world are sort of built to make things easier for me um, when you think about me as a gay guy like certain things change in that facet uh, intersectionality came in a, a number of different definitions and it's been debated over the years and just kind of different models I intersectionality has a couple different definitions uh, kim crenshaw a lawyer kind of became really popular she popularized the term um, thinking about this as sort of multiple aspects of ourselves so you can almost think about it as a multi-dimensional graph um, where um, especially black women are sort of located in different spaces than black men, apart from white women, apart from white men. And in that way, it's a useful. Some people see it as a kaleidoscope of our identities colliding. Um, the Combahee River Collective, which had really important roots and still to, to this day in Albany, New York, um, and some of its members thought about it as intersectionality. It was what would happen if we theorized policies, ethics, beginning with the experiences of black women, making black women's space safe and important, centralized, and then that would work to improve their lives as black women, but everyone around them. So there's different models for what this means. So you've mentioned about the expectations to certain groups and the collisions of them. Or So how is it different to be in multiple groups, not one specific group, making intersectionality what intersectionality is? Right. So sometimes people have thought over the years about oppressions and identities as sort of the harms of different identities as what I think of as the additive model. They're like little Lego blocks or little paper cuts that kind of stack on top of each other. Intersectionality says that we just begin in different locations about what's expected or possible for our lives. And that for me is an interesting way of doing two things, asking about, let's say, the patient who's in front of us, 
what are the options that they had available to them before they came to the hospital? Right? What are the harms or hardships that they might have faced that not everybody would have? And then it also says for both patients and physicians in medical ethics, they have different tools that they're ready when they're thinking about how to respond carefully and ethically for this patient. So again, intersectionality there is just a almost like a microscope or a lens that lets us ask different questions on how to help the patient in front of us. You just briefly mentioned about hospital, but when it comes to medical accessibility or medical field in general, how is intersectionality portrayed and such? Yeah, I think that's a good and complicated question. It's hard. Sometimes we're at the policy level, right? We will be making laws or um, goals trying to help certain groups. So population health often thinks about big populations, right? Um, women in Albany County, say from a certain age range, 18 to 25. When you're thinking about that, you can sometimes totalize or make that group seem like they're uniform. But within that group, there's going to be a lot of variation. And I think it's important to sometimes keep both the simple rule where we're tar say targeting women's health but also the more complicated conversations knowing that those women are not going to be monolithic in their abilities or their resources that they have available also in the harms that have sort of slowed down their good health or their ability to make change in their own life and so intersectionality in that way is a, a tool to kind of keep both the big picture and the very microscopic individualized conversation in play so you can kind of move back and forth between the two of them okay so diverging a little from a mere hospital setting in general sure. um during the me hashtag me too and the black lives matter era what kind of change was there um in the medical field or both in general and in the medical field i think both of those movements had been around for a while um so i would say two things happened one we started to have a greater conversation, I think, about how identity matters, how the particular, the small, the micro location that you occupy in, a, in either your neighborhood or in your state or in your career, why those individual differences matter, right? Um, we started to have a better conversation about identity. And I think a lot, not not solely, but a lot of that was happening by young people on online movements, right? They were able to kind of connect and push some of that protest movement. I think the other thing that I'm seeing is that in my professional organizations, I'm seeing that the category of patient, right, the generic patient, um, there are young scholars who are really taking that and criticizing it in more complicated ways, saying individual patients are not all identical in that way, that some things will be different about different patients than their background, given their identity, their social location. And those things need to be taken into account so that we can care for them better, so that we can understand what their problems are and what their needs are and respond better. And I think for me, I'm excited. We have more philosophy often generalizes, makes a universal or an abstract subject and assumes everybody has the same positionality. And what I'm seeing now is a greater movement in my field to really take seriously the differences and to name them and to think what the implications are, and then therefore what solutions we can either have for helping individual patients now or preventing health harms in the future. This kind of connects to our last very question, but you said that young people were mostly exposed during those movements, but as they 
are becoming like future doctors or health professionals, they're more likely to be open or exposed to such matters. And I wanted to, like, this was part of my last question about future plans for intersectionality in the medical field. But even before that, I would like to um, acknowledge microaggression that occurs due to one's race, gender, class, et cetera, and such intersectionality. So can you address in what form a microaggression exists in a hospital or a medical field and why it's so much harder to fight oppression due to intersectionality? Yeah, so I think young people kind of brought these movements, gave them a kind of momentum or kind of energy, but they were in place before too, in a number of ways, right? A number of um, women of color and especially queer women of color were behind these movements. And so one thing I always thought was interesting was sometimes the origins of these movements that might've started to say a decade ago, um, sometimes got uptake and got talked about, but often it kind of got erased as if these movements were brand new. So there is, even that is a kind of interesting oversight. Microaggressions to connect that up are sometimes the way I think about them are these little paper cuts, little harms of oppression. They're not massive uh systems that are really meant to limit you they're just little dings um again i like that metaphor of a paper cut the little things that happen to us along the day most people seem assume that microaggressions unlike say explicit racism homophobia sexism which are intentional microaggressions themselves might be really unintentional or subconscious uh really hard to see on maybe on both sides the one who's perpetrating and also the one who's receiving the microaggressions and in those moments they're more ephemeral they might add up over time and i it's part of why i like the paper cut idea of sort of like over time a paper cut might hurt but you may not notice it except for little moments in the day when you know you go to pick up something and you, your thumb hurts but over time, if you had a number of paper cuts, right, it's going to get more damage. And also there's the possibility that one of those is going to get infected and cause really greater harm. Microaggressions kind of work that way. They're just little nicks at our identity, little harms. And whether or not you notice them, they're real. We feel them over time. And they do have bodily impact. It's hard to measure them on an individual basis. But when you step back and start thinking about communities that receive them, say, people of color, queer folks, women, we can we ultimately can measure them in bodily well-being and psychological well-being. And we notice that people who receive them on a regular basis just have poorer health outcomes, right? Higher stress rates, um, higher rates of depression, things like this. So in that way, microaggressions are an interesting way in. Um, it's maybe a an extra tool along with oppression in that way. So if oppression is about what happens to large groups, how groups oppress, limit the lives of other groups, microaggressions is sort of another little tool talking about the really small, fine details of how harms happen here on individuals, uh, from individuals to individuals. So sometimes really, um, I think bad, I'm not sure this is immediately about medicine, but sometimes the way we talk about people, jokes we tell that aren't intentional, um, might be a kind of microaggression. Uh, we have a greater emphasis today on talking about pronouns and identities, how individuals can choose their own pronouns. And I think part of that, for some people, they're like, they may resist that move and say something like, well, I don't think you should be reduced to any one word. Or there's a lot of stress for some people about thinking about the use of they, them 
pronouns as a plural rather they, we were taught in grammar school, you know, they, them is always a plural and using it about an individual seems sort of grammatically incorrect and it jars them. But part of the deal with asking people what pronouns they like to use and respecting that is to say, I want to know how to make you feel comfortable. And the sort of intentional dismissal of that is probably not a microaggression. But when we repeatedly misgender people, I think that's a kind of microaggression and it hurts people, right? Especially when they've already told you how they want to be treated. So, you know, if I started calling you Jennifer um, because I don't take the time to learn your name, like it might be because I was flaky and I had a really bad moment, but the more I do it, if it's intentional or sorry, if it's repetitive, that seems to me more closer to like a microaggression. Other microaggressions in medicine might be about whether or not we take who we take seriously about their pain and acknowledging whether or not they're being honest about their pain and so in some moments people of color there's been a lot of literature saying people of color have over years historically been undertreated for their pain at some point those are individual little moments and i think those could be microaggressions when you start stepping back and seeing them as big patterns that becomes probably something closer to like a systematic oppression system um, but I do think they're the, those two tools are kind of interrelated in some complicated ways that probably I can't lay out here, and I, but I would love to read more about like how others kind of see those connections. Well, thank you so much for ending this interview with thoughtful insight and for your remarkable thoughts today throughout, Dr. DeCoster. Uh, thank you for your questions. Nice to talk to you.